Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie and this week I am joined by Neil Almond. Neil is a deputy head at a South London school leading on curriculum, evidence-informed practice and assessment. And this week I asked Neil to talk to me about reading and reading instruction. During Neil's half-term break he gave a wonderful free talk titled What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Reading and Comprehension. And I use this talk as the framework for today's discussion. Neil and I explore what was meant when we discuss reading, what we we're getting wrong with reading, and Neil shares some statistics that are quite frankly unacceptable and that one in five children leave our secondary schools unable to read to a certain level. We then explore what approaches we've used historically to get to this place, such as whole language, look-say methods and phonics instruction. We then explore different models of reading that teachers should be aware of. Hoover and Tumner's simple view of reading. Hollis Scarborough's reading rope. And Mark Seidenberg's general triangle framework. We then go on to move back in time and, and explore a brief history of writing systems and why it might be important to know this. And then we move on to discussing why learning to read is a little bit like becoming an expert biker. Beginning with phonics and then exploring fluency, and then exploring comprehension. And Neil does a wonderful job of articulating his analogy. So without further ado, let's dive right into my discussion with Neil Almond on what every teacher needs to know about reading and reading comprehension. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today on Becoming Educated. How are you? Very well, thank you, Darren. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. As the listeners will find out, I, I'm fascinated by some of the talks you've given, and you give a free talk in your spare time during your holidays, your half-term break on uh, reading and reading comprehension. And followers of mine may know that it's, it's an area that I'm becoming very fascinated by. Um, and I'm trying to learn as much as I can. So I want to tap into some of your wisdom and knowledge um, today. So, but before we do that, can you please share with listeners a little bit about you and your career to date, please? Yeah, sure. So I've been in the education profession now for this must be my eighth year. I did a three-year BA at uh, a university up in London, a BA in primary education. Always wanted to be a primary school teacher ever since I was in primary school. Couldn't imagine doing anything else. I've never had a break uh, between education. So I always joke that I went to nursery, then I went to primary school, then I went to secondary school, then I went to university, and then I went back to primary school pretty much straight away afterwards, which maybe wasn't the best thing but looking back at it now I think you know the reason I'm here is because of all those past experiences so 
have to be grateful for that, even though at the time it doesn't feel that way. A class teacher then for four of those, four of those years, four or five of those years, the first two or three years, you know, shooting in the dark, seeing what, whatever I feel like effectively, there wasn't uh, a great deal of thought about teaching and learning or curriculum or anything like that. And then at about my fourth, fifth year in, I found the Craig Barton Mass podcast. Um, readers, if you're not, uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, it's not just about maths. Um, he's had some incredible guests uh, crossing all sorts of divide of educa- in education. And I just remember listening to the episode that he had with um, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. And I can just remember, I was listening to it on a train on a commute, because at this time I had about an hour and a half commute each way to work. So you could, quite fortunate, I could get through a whole episode in like one day. So I got through a lot of them quite, quite quickly. And on this particular episode, my jaw just dropped. And I was like, gosh, I know literally nothing about the learning process. And... I'm a teacher, I should know something about the learning process. And so I can always kind of pinpoint that was the day that fundamentally changed my life professionally because from then on in, I was just dead set on making sure that I can learn as much about everything as possible to do with this job because I had the time. I gave myself an extra 15 hours uh, a week to do this and I could either watch Netflix on the train up or I could use that time to listen to podcasts uh read books about education which you know, I'd never apart from at university I'd never really kind of uh done whilst I was a practicing teacher uh, and then it all just kind of avalanche from there I was very fortunate started to tweet uh, at the time then, I fancied a, something, a new role. There were no kind of leadership roles at my current, uh, at my current school, which is just a local authority school. But my head teacher at the time was very gracious. He knew I was looking for that next step. So he uh, kindly let me advertise myself on Twitter, uh, found a job then working um, for the Woodland Academy Trust, which is a small academy trust down uh, in the Kent Dartford area um, as a lead teacher, curriculum development, those kinds of things. Saw out the pandemic with them and then September just gone. So that would be September 2021. I've started as a deputy head teacher down in uh, Croydon Way, which I'm very much enjoying. It's the first time kind of having that real operational day-to-day running of a school experience, which I think is, is vital even for those who, you know, love teaching and learning, love curriculum. If you don't know how a school works and how uh, the kitchen, a member of the kitchen staff being off ill and kind of the disruption that causes, you can have the the best curriculums on a bit of paper, you know, in the world, but you need to be able to sort out that mess for it to be implemented effectively. And that's where I'm at right now. Such a fascinating journey. I love how you can pinpoint exactly that change. I'm trying to do the same to myself because I think about three years ago, I hadn't didn't even know that anyone wrote a book about education. <laughs> yeah, it was the baptism of fire. That's for sure. I can. It's one of the one of those weird episodic memories. I can just remember when Robert Bjork mentioned on the podcast that 
performance is an indicative for like future learning and i can literally remember standing on the on the uh on the train just being like what (laughs) (laughs) everything you've been taught is a lie or everything that you thought you knew about teaching and learning was a lie effectively yeah no, certainly. And, and I found out, I read a book, I think it was one of David Dido's one, what if everything you knew about education was wrong? And you're like, well, it just feels like that can, kind of experience. So today we're going to unpack a little bit about reading and, and reading comprehension, because as I said, you gave a, a wonderful free talk over your, your half term on that and uh, took so many, so many ideas away from it myself. And it really helped bring some of my reading together. Can I ask you why you got interested in and reading and reading research and, and, and how it's helped you so far. Yeah, so as part of my role with the Woodland Academy Trust, I was in a year three class. Uh, this was obviously all um, before the pandemic and everything, so they'd all had you know, stable schooling for two to three years. And there was just a high percentage of children who just couldn't read fluently. And at year three, uh, which is seven and six, six and seven and eight year olds. And that's the time really where we're thinking about, right, you know, you, it's that stage where we almost expect them to swap from learning to read to reading to learn. And so the fact that they were really, really struggling with their reading, um, and I had to think about, okay, well, I'm the lead teacher here, so I need to also give this teacher some support and some advice as to how to best do that uh, led me going away to just learning as much about the reading process um, as I could. I was quite fortunate that around the same time, uh, Christopher Such was doing uh, the same thing. We were quite fortunate that we kind of talked very early on about reading processes and we were recommending, you know, each other different books and different papers um, about reading. And yeah, it all kind of streamlined from there that I thought, you know, how can I best make sure that these groups of children learn to read as quick as possible? I I didn't expect it to lead it down the rabbit hole that uh, I was expecting simple answers and how foolish I was to think that it would be so simple. Certainly it is a a wild rabbit hole and I'm finding that finding that out myself it's it's such a fascinating one so let's let's dig into it a little bit i've still i've kind of shaped the conversation today around around the same similar themes to your talk online and you started that by by clarifying what we mean when we say reading so can i ask that to you Neil? what do we mean when we say reading right so when we talk when we say what do we mean by reading and it's really important that we do clarify this because i think a lot of arguments that we see Uh, in educational discourse stem from the fact of what we each person means when we say read so for me reading involves kind of two processes it's that translation of the written print into sound and therefore into words which you then hopefully then begin to comprehend so you kind of make meaning from those translations and so it's kind of that dual process. When I talk about reading, at least, that's so I'm talking about the actual decoding and the lifting of the text, but also then the making meaning from the text. If I'm just referring to that first process, I would use the word decode, so how we teach decode. Because what you tend to see 
uh, in educational discourse, it's you know, phonics isn't the only way to teach reading, and it's not the only way to teach reading. I think it's the only way to teach decoding, because the evidence does seem to suggest that that is the most efficient and effective way to teach the process of decoding. But even the most passionate of you know, uh, synthetic phonics advocates would agree that phonics isn't the only way to teach reading because phonics does not and has never tried to claim that it uh, builds or uh, is somewhat any form of instruction for that making of the meaning of those translations. Phonics is simply just how do I take these squiggly lines on a page and make sense of them? So an important distinction to make first off, because I say, I'm trying to be strict with myself where I say, if I'm just talking about reading, I mean both, and I'll just say decoding, if I just mean um, taking the words off the page, but old habits die hard and sometimes I do slip. <laughs> no, I certainly do, and I need to slip to do, but thank you so much for clarifying that. Let us then discuss what, what are we getting wrong with, with reading? Because some of the, the statistics around this are, are quite, harrowing him worrying i don't know what the, what word to use about reading and the kind of statistics around how many of us can end up functionally illiterate yeah everyone seems to have yeah, different figures depending on where you look and who you believe i think we can say on average we're looking at between 20 and 25 percent of you know children kind of leave school and that's you know secondary school pretty much you know functionally illiterate yeah, that's you know, and in 2015 it's 18 percent of 15 year olds uh, in uh, 2020 it was reported that 25 percent of 15 year olds have a reading age under 12 so you know, we're assuming you know it's anywhere between a quarter to a third really can, or no, sorry, between one fifth and one quarter of children are leaving uh, what they call Ill illiterate. Whether it's fully illiterate, I'm not convinced. Having done some year six, if they're basing this sort of like year six SATS papers, I know how harsh and strict those mark schemes can be. And, you know, sometimes like, yeah, you've clearly understood, but because it's not in the mark scheme, I can't give you the mark. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's quite a useful insight to have but certainly you know those headline features seem to be between a fifth to a quarter of students are you know, leaving functionally literate which I don't think anyone would claim you know you have a hundred young people in a room to say that 20 to 25 of them are going to leave not being able to read it, it's not a pretty good indictment given the wealth of reading research out there and how much we know about the process of reading you know, reading is one of those things that um cognitive psychologists you know, have been looking around looking and experimenting around for ages. i think it's one of the most if you think about the different subjects in school it is one of if not the most kind of researched area around uh, you know, schooling and how we make how we can best uh, you know get those young people on the route that they need to do so the fact that it is so high, uh, yeah, it is a bit worrying and a bit concerning. Certainly, certainly put it in context, if you have a hundred, put a hundred of your students in a hall and 20, 25 of them, yeah, literate, I mean, 
put into context, functional literate, please correct me if I'm wrong, means they possibly can't read what's on a medicine bottle, um, the headline of a newspaper. Yeah, complete like ingredients on a back on the back, you know, a simple bit of ingredients or the correct dosage of tablets, I think is another metric that they use. And if we're taking, you know, that 15 um, year old as well, you know, they've had 10, 11 years of reading instruction. That's a lot of hours. And we're still saying that you know, such a high percentage of them aren't at that point where they are functionally literate it's yeah concerning it, it certainly is so come on we'll pivot a little bit and, and can i ask about what approaches do we usually use or, or have we historically used to teach the english language so i definitely recommend if you want some you know someone who's far more knowledgeable about this than me i do recommend that they listen to that um episode with your previous guest uh, Angie because I know she t- talks about this in there because this is very much where um, some of the models that I'll talk about she does reference for sure so certainly whether it's been systematic or not I think everyone has received some phonics instruction they probably don't know that they've received phonics instruction but I'd find it particularly difficult to believe that at no point during someone's life has a adults pointed to a letter and said this is ah that's very basic but that is still kind of phonics instruction previously we've also had what we call um the whole word strategy and that is where you are it was recommended that you learn words by effectively by sight so you kind of try to see that word um as a whole, and then through kind of flashcards and repetition, the idea then is that it would sink in, that you would remember uh, perhaps the word shape, and then from understanding what the word shape looks like, or you might hear the onset and the rhyme and then connect it then to other uh, words as you kind of progress then through your reading uh, instruction. Or there's kind of that in-between, which is balanced literacy, which effectively tries to take the what is assumed to be the best of phonics and assumed to be the best of the whole word um, strategy, uh, mush them together um, to produce something that effectively tries to keep both camps happy. But as you said, when you try to keep uh, such polarizing extremes happy, it, it ends up pleasing no one. It, it certainly does. And does that balance literacy is that what's meant when i when i read about mixed methods approaches yes yes so balance literacy mixed methods are perfect synonyms for each other they take the the bit of phonics so they might teach the a very kind of basic element of phonics so the the letter a representing a and book f so there's almost like that what they'll teach that one-to-one correspondence one letter one sound and then for anything else that's kind of more complicated than that, then they'll kind of go to the uh, that whole word method, where it's you know here's the you know we can't uh, a popular phrase you kind of hear is that oh we can't sound out the word the we can't use our sounds for the, so we just need to learn that the is t h e, which is of course nonsense because you can sound out every word. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you make, that's how you communicate. You have to sound the words out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not necessarily 
know at that point that the th is a voiced th and that the e is er, but we can teach them that in this particular um, in this particular word th is th and the e is er, the. It's not too complicated, I don't think. No, <laughs> certainly when you when you break it down <laughs> so easily, it's, it it really doesn't sound that. Um, yeah. So can I ask you then, what makes up the, the English language? And, and to go into that, I've read somewhere that, I think it was Alex Quigley's book I'm reading just now, that you need to know 90 to 95% of a text to be able to understand it. Yeah, that comes from uh, Nagy and Scott, I believe, in around 2000. So in terms of what we kind of need to know, obviously we need to know word meanings. So we need to have a really kind of high vocabulary so that when we sound these words out, we actually know what they mean or we certainly, so we can still attach the meaning to those words. Otherwise it just becomes you know, gibberish. So to be able to do that, we need to obviously know the 26 letters in the alphabet so that when we recognize them, we can manipulate them in such a way that we can create, and depending on your accent and where you're from, uh, approximately, you know, 44 sounds of the English language. And so with that, to be able to, within those 44 sounds, I think the a person has about a vocabulary of, I think about 70, first language English speaker will probably have a vocabulary of about 70,000 words on average. So there has to be a way then that we can manipulate these sounds in different ways. And we do that through having words of various syllable length to create those words, to create those words. Unfortunately, due to uh, the history of England as a country, um, it means we have a particularly deep orthography, which just means that our spelling system isn't a simple one-to-one -one correspondence that we can have situations where the same letter um, can represent or the same cluster of letters, if it's two or three or four letters, can make different sounds. So I'm just thinking the uh, E-I-G-H can be the I sound in height. It can also be the A sound in eight for example so there is those elements of complexity within there as i say because of the history pretty much because of the history of england uh particularly its influences from uh the romans particularly its influences at uh, you know uh, 1066 and when the french came over you know had the successful invasion then there's a whole raft of reasons to why we have this complex language but it's very possible, I believe, for children to kind of leave being able to know all of this because when you boil it down, there are only, you know, 176 common spellings for you know, approximately 90% of the words that we need. There are some extreme examples. The one that I already gave, um, the I in height, I can't think of any other examples where E-I-G-H is the I, um, spells the I sound. So you have these occasional one-offs but you can still sound them out but all we're asking children to really master is 176 common spellings um by the time ideally by the time they leave you know primary school so that they can be successful uh, 
at secondary school doing whatever it is that they need to do. Certainly, and I think you said when you said there were about there's seventy thousand words. I think you mentioned in your talk it's far easier to learn those twenty six letters, forty four sounds, and one hundred and seventy six spellings than it is to learn seventy thousand words. And I think we might come back to that. I'm going to ask a little bit later on about uh, this sight word recognition because I spoke about that with Anne, and I find this very interesting. Um, so I'd like to then move on to kind of different models of reading. What models of reading should, should teachers in, in the secondary classroom and the primary classroom be aware of? Okay, so I believe there are kind of three very useful practical models that teachers at least should know about. Uh, the first is the simple view of uh, reading, and that's by Goff and Tumner. It's about... Ooh, coming up to 40 years old now. Uh, and very simply, you need to um, imagine a, a, four, a four quadrant axis where your uh, horizontal axis is word recognition, your vertical axis is uh, language comprehension. And so if you're in the, and you, because I've talked about how reading is you know, this dual layered kind of process of decoding and language comprehension, it's a useful model for you to map out where each child may have a deficit or indeed if they don't have a deficit. So our top right quadrant um, would represent students who have a good language comprehension but and also good word recognition. So they can decode really fluently and they really understand what it is that they are reading. Whereas uh, the bottom right quadrant is someone who has um, excellent word recognition so they can read very fluently they they take those words off the page and they um, convert that into sound successfully but they struggle to understand the what it is that they are reading and you tend not to get too many children within that specific area but those that are it tends to be some sort of you know vocabulary deficit perhaps so they don't actually know enough of the words that they're reading to actually then thought make sense of it. In your top uh, left quadrant, you'd get um, those that have good language processing, but um, poor word recognition. So those are students who really struggle to um, decode. So they struggle with that taking of the, the scribbles off the page and converting it into sound and making sense of it. But if you were to read them that passage, they would understand exactly what that passage was saying. And then you have your bottom left quadrant then, which is those that have that poor language comprehension. So even if you read it to them, they'd struggle to understand it and they can't independently take the words off the page themselves. Uh, Goff and Tumner, they kind of created this kind of formula where effectively um, you're decoding um, multiplied by your language comprehension effectively produces your reading comprehension. And that multiplication is um, pretty important um, because obviously if your decoding has a score of zero, then it doesn't matter if your language comprehension has a score of 100, your reading comprehension is still effectively zero because what we're saying is that you can't go off and read independently. Likewise, your decoding could be exceptionally high and you might have a score of a hundred and your language comp uh, language comprehension could be zero. So we still can't say that, you know, you are a successful independent reader because the, multiplic the multiplicative relationship between decoding and language comprehension 
uh, isn't there. Obviously, ideally, what we want to do is get um, both of those less scores effectively as high as possible. Yeah, ideally, I think they use the, a scale of one because one and one is one. So you're therefore your reading comprehension is you know perfect. So certainly, kind of how we view how we should view early reading instruction is that we try we put as much into that decoding process as possible and get them to decode as much as possible we can still provide lang language comprehension because that's what's on the simple view it's important that it's you know stressed that it's language comprehension so that's us reading stories to children it's us you know teaching them about the world all of those kinds of things teaching them vocabulary all of that kind of stuff that might be outside of a typical you know reading lesson are still things that are going to improve that language comprehension whereas you know our reading instruction very early on will focus on that decoding because if that decoding is zero then it doesn't matter how much of that other language comprehension they're going to get they still can't read and obviously because of the complexities of our uh, writing system a writing system it takes students in England you know, far longer to read than it does say our uh, our Scandinavian friends say in Finland, which is one of the reasons why you know they can start school at the age of seven, because their uh, their the orthography the author the orthography of their language is far shallower. It is more like a one to one correspondence. It's far easier for uh, parents over there to teach Finnish children how to read, how to decode rather, because it's not as complex as saying, well, in this word. EA could be E, or it might also be um, A. So that's the first. That's the first model. Second model, which I think is really important, is uh, Hollis Scarborough and the, her reading rope, which um, breaks down this idea of language comprehension and word recognition at a bit more of a granular level, and kind of lets you see how these two sides kind of you know. Um, interweave to kind of create this skilled reader so in terms of language comprehension that's um, then broken down into things like background knowledge vocabulary language structure um, and also your knowledge of literacy itself so the idea of um, print concepts you know the idea that you know we go left to right and um, in English, whereas, you know, in some cultures, they do go right to left. So that's important that, you know, at a very early age, children learn that. And then with um, the word recognition, we look that we look at that at uh, the, phonolo the phonological awareness level. So can students, can children actually uh, discern the different sounds that we want them to hear? Um, then we have some basic decoding. So that's you know, very simply taking some words off the page. So they might have... Um, S, A, and T might be written down. Can they go S, A, T? That's our basic decoding. And then eventually we want to build that up to sight recognition so that these words are what the, the technical term is um, orthographically mapped so that it's part of their sight word lexicon so they can just see the letters S, A, T and read and notice immediately that that is SAT. Sorry, I'm reading um, that. That's yeah, fine. map, so it's part of their sight word lexicon. That is a that is a fantastic, fantastic phrase. And thank you. Um, 
between that and it. And it was interesting as you're saying that I've got that right in front of me there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and reading comprehension, uh, language comprehension, the word decoding. So thank you. Um, do you want me to do the third one? Yes, please go for it. <laughs> Still on model two. Um, actually, just going back to the um, yeah, going back to the Scarborough reading rope. Um, literally about an hour or so before my talk actually began, uh, Hoover and Tumner actually released a. Uh, they updated, they updated an article. Um, I wouldn't say they'd been uh, attacked as such for the um, the model that they'd had on language comprehension, but there were uh, some people within the reading uh, research community uh, provided some challenges and they had provided um, some others back. So they have a really interesting uh, link to a diagram, which kind of lets you see how all of those aspects within the, uh, the reading rope kind of build on each other so really effective you kind of want to see okay well actually what comes first in all of this it's a really effective diagram to um, have a look so i'll pass that to you down which you can um, link to i'm sure in the show notes definitely thank you uh, and the third useful model that i certainly think is uh useful is this what they call the general triangle framework um, for reading. And that's from uh, Mark Seidenberg and it features heavily in his book, uh, Language at the Speed of Sound. Sorry, language at the speed of, check now. Language, yeah, language at the speed of. Yeah, language at the speed of sight. Yeah, language at the speed of sight. So this one comes from Mark Seidenberg's uh, Language at the Speed of Sight, which is one of the first books that I read and it took me a, an age to get through it but boy am I glad that I yeah, persevered and got through it but effectively this what this model kind of lets us know is that we connect the spellings of sounds to the sounds that they make and it's through that through those sounds through to the spelling is that we create meaning but it's also rather reciprocal in nature in that one when we're a beginner reader we will heavily rely on that phonological channel because we're still kind of processing these individual sounds we're not at that point of mastery yet where we know what um the code is saying that's in front of us so we kind of rely on the sound and that will kind of send a, a message, helps activate some meaning, but at the same time, we kind of map then the sound to those spellings as well. And therefore we map that spelling to some meaning as well. So we see at that, from that process of sounding out makes us hear cat. So, it, um, so our brain is like, oh yeah, meaning cat. I know what that one of those is. We kind of understand that the letters C A T uh, represent the spellings of cat. So when we see cat as a spelling, that activates the meaning as well. And depending on the word, um, particularly you know regarding like, homophones, we might need some wider context um, to help us uh, analyze what the particular meaning of what we're reading currently is. Um, and I think that's a really useful one because it really made me understand the importance of phonics and that we can't kind of just jump to the spelling because we can't 
ever really kind of bypass um, this phonological channel in terms of how we then create meaning. You know, we need both, and that phonological aspect has to come first. Without that, um, that whole reading process it isn't going to work. That's a wonderful way to to sum that up about this. That we can't bypass that phonological channel, and we need that to to help us add meaning to the to the letters and the words that we we end up saying. So thank you. Um, before we, we dive into your, your analogy of of, right, of becoming an expert cyclist, um, can you can you share with me a a little hist- a brief history of writing system and why it's important to to know this? Yeah, I really undenied about whether it was important or not to um, include when I did this particular talk, but I do think it does provide us again, with a bit more evidence as to why, uh, you know, I certainly believe we should teach certainly the aspect of decoding the way that we do teach it. Obviously, before, not before language, but before writing systems, uh, people had to have a way of communicating and the most clear and obvious way for that was to draw literal representations of what they were doing seeing or trying to warn about so this is where obviously you know your oldest cave paintings you know come in uh, i was very fortunate that christopher such introduced me to uh, a wonderful program its name is now it escapes me which is really embarrassing Uh, Christopher Such introduced me to a wonderful program called The Ascent of Man, which is a very old um, documentary that literally um, is about 10 or 11 episodes. Um, but it's Professor Jacob Bronowski who just tries to pinpoint the kind of fundamental parts of the human past that have led us to this particular point. And that the first kind of episode. Um, ends with this kind of wonderful monologue about how humans picking up, you know, flowers and crushing them together to create paint was the beginning of the scientific revolution because for the first time, we're not, uh, humans weren't confined to, you know, transient information once it's spoken, it's gone. They had some sort of way of recording something and they use obviously that was their observations, which you know during the you know the Neolithic era, you know ten thousand to four thousand BC, it was you know, it was probably fine. Still, you know, far from perfect. But if a if someone wanted to write a uh, draw, you know, a, a herd of um, deer or whatever it was, they could do so. The problem, of course, is that we don't know whether that means you know are there lots of deer around are there not too many deer around are there literally only three deer around so that means that you know we shouldn't be hunting around here because there's not enough and so obviously being able to just represent you know the physical world is fine up to a point but you know as humans did progress our needs to be far more accurate in what we wanted to communicate far greater and so we can't necessarily draw particular parts you know how do you draw in or be or you know some particular abstract nouns like jealousy or whatever it might be so 
the language system obviously grew and with that the writing system would would have had to have grown with it as well so then you get to this idea of logographs which effectively represent it's just a, a funny enough a written logo which can stand for whatever we use logographs um in our current writing system so the percentage sign is, is an example of a logograph the pound sign is an example of a logograph and that's all fine because it has that shared meaning obviously that's not going to be the same throughout all um in the past wouldn't have been the same throughout all cultures what then some particularly clever clever people did around the you know, ancient egyptian time is that they really kind of began to play around with this idea of logographs um, and it's something called the the rebus principle where you could have different logographs together to represent uh, completely different words so you could have a logograph of an eye, uh, a logograph of a deer, and together that logo, the, that lo those logographs combined could form the word idea. Um, but again, it's not. It's far from perfect because if you wanted to represent every single word that you wanted to create with logographs or multiple logographs combined to make you know more if you have a vocabulary of and it wouldn't have been 70,000 words well, I suspect it wouldn't have been 70,000 words during that time um, you need a lot of symbols far more than we currently uh, currently use um, but it's here we kind of hit the point that we hit the limit on human um, kind of visual memory for these things. It's around, you know, two and a half, the estimates are kind of between two and a half and 5,000. Two and a half is relatively simple to do. Anything greater than two and a half, like it's a lot of uh, extraneous effort to kind of really kind of remember what those symbols mean. Um, and that's really, really important because as language progressed, they, um, thinking about especially, you know, the Sumeria here, uh, one of the first writing systems, their language you know, was a mess. Thankfully, um, some wonderful people called the Phoenicians uh, had this wonderful idea about an alphabet and a kind of a very kind of simple idea here that within words, you can hear sounds. And so instead of trying to represent a word um, instead of trying to represent or get a, a logo to represent uh, the entire word, what we can do is think about how we could represent that smallest unit of sound. And that, in this case, we call those phonemes. And if you can associate a symbol with that smallest unit of sound, then it doesn't matter what the word is, because if you hear that sound within that word, you could use that symbol consistently across multiple words to understand it. As I say, the Phoenicians were the first people to have this idea, so they were the first people to develop an alphabet. Uh, they were massive trading partners of um, the ancient Greeks, so the ancient Greeks kind of borrowed that idea. Uh, 
for the history fans there, I'm sure people will know that the Romans eventually successfully, uh, ancient uh, Greece successfully became part of the Roman Empire. And I'm sure people know that the, the Roman Empire successfully, you know, came as far as Britain. And so that's the idea of how the alphabet eventually reached our shores. Obviously, of course, you know, changed ever so slightly. And then again, far more invasions and migrations and various social changes happened, which meant that we ended up with the writing system the way it was. But effectively, kind of that's how we've gotten to this kind of point. I think it's just really kind of important to know that it's not necessarily a, an evolutionary aspect of writing that you would start off with a pictograph then a logograph and then like an alphabet as if like the alphabet is the the golden standard there are um, examples of cultures in India who um, tried to use the alphabet or tried to use an alphabet but they thought it was too hard for them to use so actually they um, went back to a more uh, syllabic way of presenting their own language which as I say as long as it's within that those limits of human memory um, that would be absolutely fine a, a criticism that uh, people who advocate for phonics come up to are things like oh you know um, the Chinese writing systems or you know kanji for, or um, you know kanji like Japanese kanji um, you know they're able to use like characters um, which is it's true they have a, a bit of a mixture but certainly the, the character aspect of uh, Jap the Japanese writing system is well within the limits of um, our long-term memory, of what we can remember as logographs, but also um, the elements of phonology that they use kind of help to make that writing system um, clearer for themselves as well. So there's certainly elements of phonology kind of within every writing system despite the fact that they may not use an alphabet as such so interesting the kind of the formation of how it kind of evolved over time and, and you've mentioned the kind of the, the cultural kind of input of, of our of our language and alphabet and how it kind of has, has came to be so thank you for that and, and i think it does kind of tie together what we're we kind of first spoke about in terms of um, phonics instruction being being the, the foundation and not everything about reading, but the foundation and how kind of the log the logographs were moved to pictographs and then an alphabet kind of that kind of smallest unit of sound um, the phonemes there. So thank you so much. We're now going to move into to your analogy, and, and I really like this one. And I want to ask you, Neil, why is uh, learning to read a, a little bit like becoming an expert biker? I think it's a useful one because it takes a lot of effort and there are clearly different stages to become you know, a literal expert biker, not just someone who decides to you know, take their bike out you know, once a, a Saturday or something like that. So especially uh, now, if you uh, have young children or you kind of see young children uh, they kind of have what uh, these like push balance bikes, which certainly weren't around when I was learning to ride my bike. It's it straight on the stabilizers, but uh, I'm glad that they are because it helps make this analogy uh, a little bit more stronger. So those are the the, the push balance bikes. Those are the bikes where um, children will sit down, but they're still kind of where their feet touch the ground. So they are literally, you know, pushing themselves along. The idea of those is that it's, it's that first sense of then trying to get a bit of balance. Uh, that's useful because 
believe every phonics program that I'm certainly aware of, and certainly if it's on our Department for Education's uh, verified list, the way we teach uh, phonics in those kind of first initial stages at the age of four is that we make our complex code, we make it as transparent as possible. So we don't kind of tell them, we deliberately withhold certain aspects uh, in order to make it appear far more transparent. So we'll kind of teach them a one-to-one -one correspondence. So your um, the letter I is always going to be an I. A is always going to be, um, sorry, the letter A is always going to be, is always going to represent the A sound, for example. And we do that pretty much for the, the whole alphabet. And there's a few um, double consonants endings as well that we kind of teach them as well. And we wait until they kind of master that those particular skills so that when they see something like, uh, when they see the letters SAT, they go SAT. When they see PAT, they can go PAT. When they see PAN, they can go PATN. When they see PIN, they can go PIN, et cetera, et cetera, until you know, they've mastered that one-to-one -one correspondence with um, the code that we've been taught. And that's where uh, decodable, the idea of decodable text come into play. Um, effectively what a decodable text will try to do is just effectively limit the types of sounds that those children will encounter when they read, when they read those words. So after we've taught them uh, a handful of sound spelling correspondences, um, you know, we'll give them, we can give them these books in the full knowledge or the, te in the teacher's full knowledge that, um, you know, every word that they encounter is providing they use their phonics knowledge, they will be able to decode it. Um, yes, the stories aren't particularly interesting. They're pretty, you know, when you're limiting yourself to just certain sets of sounds, you're not going to create epics by any stretch of the imagination, but that's because the purpose isn't to create epics. The purpose is to give children that deliberate opportunity to practice and master those sounds that they've been um, accustomed to hearing and what they've been learning. Then kind of our next step in the analogy, this is where we would kind of get on the, um, the bike with the stabilizers. And this is where we kind of start revealing layers of complexity to um, our our code system that we have. So here we would introduce the um, ideas like two letters can spell one sound. So if you see an S and a H, that's gonna be sh. That three letters can spell one sound. So if you see I, G and a H, that can, and that represents the spelling I, or that um, four letters can represent one sound. So when you see, E-I-G-H, that can be, you know, that's A as in eight. That one spelling can have different sounds. So E and A um, can be the, um, can represent the E sound like in beak, but it can also represent the A sound like in steak. And then also you have this idea that one sound can have, you know, multiple spellings. So if you wanted to um, spell the E sound, that could be, just an E by itself, it could be double E, 
it could be what we call a, a split diagraph where you have an E of consonants and then an E afterwards, or the EA um, spelling of E, which is obviously the most complex aspect of our um, spelling of our, yeah, our writing code. Certainly children tend not to struggle too much on this idea that three letters can represent one sound or four letters can re represent one sound. When you get to the idea that one spelling can represent multiple sounds, or one sound can represent um, you know, different. One sound can be represented through different spellings. That's uh, certainly a pinpoint where uh, children can find that element difficult, and that's where greater emphasis on reading, kind of, and especially reading those decodables, needs to happen because our brains are organization machines. You know, they analyze for meaning at every possible moment. So you know, the students don't know they're doing that, but the more that you read, the more you're going to pick up those statistical regularities within the writing system that we have, the more likely it is that when you come to see a particular spelling, you are you know, likely to know how to pronounce it. Of course, it's never perfect because, you know, even... Today, adults, if they come across a word that they, you know, they do not know and they haven't read much, they don't know how to pronounce, they'll still use their phonics to sound it out. And, you know, they go through those statistical regularities that they know, you know, okay, this one, this letter could be this sound here, or it might be this one. And, you know, then it's a bit of trial and error and you, you think you have it. And then, you know, I've been pronouncing, you know, hyperbole wrong my whole life until someone corrected me the other day you know it's not hyperbole but uh, you know, that was a bit of a shock to the system because I've never heard it properly before but you know that's the case of how our writing system works and that's how it all happens so but again at the minute here we're kind of still on st stabilizers now depending on what your phonics program um, will depend on how long you're on those stabilizers for. There are certain uh, programs that choose to teach more of that advanced code. So I mentioned 176 um, common spellings. There are some phonics programs that choose to teach all 176. There are some that don't. So that's something to kind of be, I think, be mindful when you're trying to decide what phonics program you'd like to follow. Um, how much of that advanced code do they actually teach? Once we're happy with that and they got to mastery again, which is, you know, a lot of work, um, plenty of reading, plenty of accurate reading, I should say, because if you don't read correctly, you're only going to kind of embed that disfluency. I think, you know, Doug Lamov says practice makes permanent. So if you're not practicing all those things correctly, it's just going to, you know, it, it will interfere with that kind of, data harvesting that your brain is doing. The next stage though, is at that point where, you know, oh, the stabilizers can come off a little bit, but mum or dad or whoever it is still needs to, you know, be holding on to them, running after them just a little bit because they're not quite there yet. And this for me is what I call them, that stage of fluency. So just because a child has learned that, uh, E-A can be E or it can be A doesn't mean that they can read words that have that sound fluently. 
it doesn't mean that they can read them accurately. Um, it doesn't mean they're at the point of um, automaticity, and it doesn't mean they're at the point where they don't need to consciously think about what those sound spelling correspondence are. So they can focus really on what they think the how those words should be read. So they are really kind of reading those things um, as a reader. And say what we call those kind of three processes, um, you know, we call those three elements, reading fluency. Um, reading fluency is a really interesting one because it's been called that kind of bridge between word recognition and comprehension. And for me, or certain, and certainly in my previous practice, it's certainly been an area that I've not necessarily, I haven't given it the, the credence and respect, I think, that reading fluency deserves. For me, it's always kind of been, yeah, okay, they know their phonics, you know, they can read, they read really slowly, but, you know, they, they still read. Um, but if we don't read with this fluency, then our working memory is using so much cognitive resources to make that translation happen between um, print to sound that effectively there is no more space for comprehension. And I believe it's uh, Diane McGuinness in early reading instruction who says that yes, below 90 words correct per minute, a correct words per minute, you know, comprehension is you know, nigh on impossible. Uh, which I kind of, it took a while for me to kind of, you know, take that in and believe it, but um, a real simple way to, effectively, you know, check this out for yourself is uh, get a little paragraph, put one word uh, on a slide and then set a timer um, for the slide to change automatically. And if you just change that to, so that the word, this, um, so that the slide will change, you know, just one a second. So you're only seeing one, you're seeing 60 words in a minute. It is really difficult to remember what was going on. So yeah, it's definitely a real missing, certainly has been a real missing link uh, in my practice. And certainly because of that crucial time where it happens in England, it's that crossover from key stage one to key stage two, where children will be kind of fluent, certainly with words that just contain the initial code, but words that um, contain this advanced code, they won't be there yet. So, but that tends to be the point where schools often say, yeah, we've done the phonics side of it. Now let's just really kind of hammer that comprehension side of it. So, you know, let's do comprehension after comprehension after comprehension after comprehension which isn't actually helping them because what they need at this step or at this stage is actually just plenty and plenty of opportunity to practice that reading. It's not to say that there's no room for comprehension. Absolutely there is, but even at year three, I would still be looking at, right, you know, if I want children to comprehend something, I'll, I'll do the reading or I'll kind of make sure that the students who do read independently are at least reaching that, you know, that nine, at least minimum 90 words correct per minute. And their accuracy rate is effectively 97%-ish. Because if they're doing that, then I know that um, 
what they're reading is accurate. So they're not kind of embedding disfluency. And actually they'll be at that point where they can get enjoyment from what they're reading because they can actually understand it. You know, how demoralizing must it be for us to tell kids, yeah, you know, you have to read, have to read, have to read if they're, you know, so we get them to, you know, read in silence. Um, so they're embedding disfluency and also they're reading, you know, at such a low um, word rate um, per minute that they actually, you know, don't understand what's going on at all. You know, it doesn't sound like an enjoyable experience. I don't think when I put it like that. So it's no wonder I think that children get turned off from reading quite quickly. And it's usually around that year group, around year three, year four, where I think a reader is made or, um, or not. Um, for those of you who are asking, thinking about, well, how can I improve this fluency aspect of um, my instruction? It's, it's quite straightforward, believe it or not. Um, it is just plenty of repeated oral reading. So you might take a passage roughly around a one, one and a half minutes in length that you would want a, a child to read. That's approximately um, at a child's level where they might be making perhaps, you know, for every hundred words, they might make about 10 um, errors. You would then want to model that as the expert reader, or you might want, depending on how your um, tech savvy you are, you might want to record it previously the night before, put it onto Google Classroom so that then the kids can listen to it however you want to um, use it. And then the kids just have a go at kind of recreating your models. So if I was doing this um, in fact, I was doing this earlier on today with a group of, um, you know, four students. I read the passage. They each had a go at reading the passage. Each time there'd be some feedback. If we thought that the student could read a certain bit a bit better because there might have been a clue as to how the character meant for this to be um, come across, we'd get them to read, read it again. Again, hoping that they'd do it better this time. And so they're just constantly and constantly hearing and hearing this good model, practicing, trying to recreate this good model, effectively getting to read as much as you can in however uh, set a time that you have. Uh, with these things, some good ideas are to not necessarily, you know, don't get your stopwatch and your timer out and be like, right, I want to see how quickly you can read all of this in, you know, one minute and, you know, you know, here's one minute, how far can you get, you know, you go first and then you can have another and you have a turn because then they just, you know, it becomes too inaccurate. Then it still needs to kind of be accurate for it to be particularly effective. And of course you're hoping then you might want to check a bit of comprehension, but it's really kind of understanding the reason for this particular um, session isn't comprehension. It's just to enable them to get to that point where they can comprehend independently. But if in your head you have a good idea, you know, and they've heard that model, you know, several times, then a couple of questions at the end just to check for understanding isn't going to to hurt anyone. But the the answering the questions shouldn't be the focus. It's those children, it's the kids going through that um, cognitive process of actually decoding everything that they need to. Um, decoding all those words off the page so that their fluency rate then increases. And hopefully at that point, then we can kind of release them from the bike. <laughs> and then they may get a new bike and, you know, 
I can still remember the time I went to the you know bike shop and you know told my dad right it's time for some time for some gears now <laughs> um which leads us to, and I think this at this part I think learning to ride the bike and getting to that point where you don't need that adult for me that's taking care of the decoding aspect of reading I think everything else can kind of be thought about um you know just being an effective bike rider which is you know knowing when to change gear effectively knowing when to brake effectively you know if you want to get expert at it you know buying um a, a real kind of streamlined helmet or you know perhaps if you're going to that next level then thinking about yeah, maybe i don't need pedals i need want some clip-ons instead to really make sure that my feet are in the right position you know, constantly all the time perhaps and i think for me in this particular metaphor that's where um comprehension strategies can come in i say strategies deliberately because i think too often we consider comprehension to be a, a skills-based um endeavor in that there are you know, some elements of comprehension are can simply be defined as a skill where if we practice this skill in isolation of other things then we're still going to get better at it um where there is there's no empirical evidence that the idea that there is this idea of a comprehension skill and that you know just by getting children lots and lots of comprehension to do will somehow make them um, you know far better comprehenders and so i think with regards to the the met going back to the metaphor there are things with the changing of the gear which i think is to be an expert biking as with driving a car you need to know how to change the gear effectively those are things if you think about um background knowledge which uh, is particularly uh, influential in our comprehension uh, vocabulary the comprehension strategies that we might um we might use if we do become um a bit stuck in what we're trying to comprehend and also our ability to um, make inferences as well. And then I think there are things like understanding language structures and literacy knowledge, which I think you can probably get by without those, mm -hmm. but it's still a nice addition to have. And I think that's your, uh, that's your streamlined helmet and that's your converting, uh, changing your pedals from you know, the standard pedal to your, um, uh, to your, your clip-ins yeah. if you know about British cycling you know it's it's all about those marginal gains that they kind of bought in if you can find that one percent that one percent is eventually going to uh, accumulate into something far greater than it is I can go on about all of those but I feel like I've talked for a very long time on that so I don't know if you yeah, want no, to no, thank you I, I love that I love how you've broken that down and it's an analogy that, that so many people can can recognize i mean i was uh helping my nephew with the the kind of bike without pedal the boy kind of the push balance balance yeah. bike and, and it's exactly the time that you know he's now kind of learning some phonics and and piecing together those words and my, my brother was talking to me about doing the same words like cat and sat and pat and <laughs> and then pin and pan and so on so it's it's very relevant and current just now but then you're moving on i love the you know 
the idea of, of the stabilizers coming on or, or coming off and, and the parent still helping you and the idea of, of fluency and and the kind of the different parts to, to fluency and then comprehension. Um, I think we're going to close there. I think there's so much, we've discussed so much um, of that. And thank you so much, so, so much for, for sharing. I've got about f- five pages of notes. I think I made just as much when I first heard you talk about it. it it's so, so much learning to do there. And it's such a, a fascinating topic, reading and, and reading comprehension. I mean, I think they, they all have a, they all, they can have, you can have about 40 podcasts just out of these um, ones. <laughs> Um, I've I've been reading the I've been listening to the Science of Reading podcast from Amplify and, and they're, yeah, they're great. It's all about the the reading rope and it's it's amazing that the the length of um, discussion you can have and it's such a as you said a rabbit hole to go down. So we'll, we'll kind of close that there. Um, if anyone wants to know any more, the the talk is freely available still, isn't it? Yeah, if you um, look on YouTube and type in. Uh, Tadape, which is short for thinking deeply about primary education. So Tadape uh, live reading, you'll see that there is potentially two up there. So there's the one that I've done, which is a an hour and a half, which kind of takes you through uh, how a reader goes from effectively reading not at all to being an expert reader. And we look at this idea of disciplinary literacy as well, which is this idea, um, again, to kind of stretch that analogy one step further. Um, I'm pretty certain it will break down at some point. But if you become a really good expert ride, bike rider, your disciplinary literacy is kind of like the difference between a, an off-road biker, a BMX biker, and a, a professional road biker, for example. You know, They all need to ride a bike, but what they do in those particular disciplines can be slightly different depending on the, the context that they're doing. Um, and then I believe Christopher such as put a 40-minute um, in-depth deep dive onto what um, phonics is as well, which is well worth a, well worth a watch. No, certainly. And, and some of the podcasts on um, the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, where you've got both yourself uh, and Christopher Such along with Kieran talking about um, developing fluency and phonics instruction, they're, they're really, really insightful and, and really have really helped with my own understanding so thank you for that and before we move into the my quick fire section um, can you just share with listeners a little bit about how they how they can interact with you and engage with you on social media yeah sure so i'm on twitter i'm at mr underscore armand ed um, that's a-l-m-o-n-d-e-d because to say i do not have a well there's debates actually in the in the family as to how we actually pronounce the, the surname, whether it's like Almond or whether it's just Armand. So we're still not quite sure. Um, and I can also be found then at um, nutsaboutteaching.wordpress.com where I've got a few blogs about reading, particularly if you are a secondary school teacher and this is something that interests you or you teach uh, you're responsible for a subject that isn't English, but you're aware that there are students with uh, some sort of reading deficits in your class. Uh, there's a few ideas there about uh, what you can kind of do to support them as well. No point. I definitely recommend those blogs. I, I was reading them just this week. So thank you so, so much. Um, I'm now going to move into my quick first section where I've got three questions for you based on what you're thinking about and doing just now. Um, are you okay to go ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. 
Brilliant. So um, can I ask, what, what has been your best professional learning experience to date? My best professional learning experience to date is definitely being um, going out to um, Saturday conferences, which I know isn't for everyone because family and a whole host of other reasons. There are some people who just can't think of anything worse than spending a Saturday, you know, thinking about work. And I totally understand and I totally appreciate it. And I certainly wouldn't force you to come onto these, but if you ever do get the opportunity to, I really would, because especially some of the more teacher led movements like research ed, like brew eds, uh, you know, it's just phenomenal to get so many educators in one place talking about things that they that they love it's always something for everyone you can go on things you know even if it's not something that you you're not sure about you know it, it can start just really kind of reimagining what you think about that particular topic of education and there's someone talking about every aspect of education at these events no, certainly, and the ones I've been to are absolutely, absolutely amazing. And I just got, I just purchased myself tickets to go back to another one in Warrington. I'm really looking forward to that because I missed the London conference um, due to spending some time with family. So I, I really do, I really do enjoy that. And I know what you mean about some for um, some Saturday conferences are the worst thing they can think of. But if you are interested, it really is a great place to to meet like-minded educators and to discuss things that you possibly we don't discuss in the staff room um, yeah and I think what's nice about it is that obviously your school will have their own priorities and so the CPD that they provide naturally kind of goes in to kind of make sure that their um, you know, school action plan has been developed and you know, is progressing through but that may but those aspects of teaching learning whatever it may be may not be the bits that you're interested in so you don't get cpd on those bits necessarily unless you you, know, you go and find out yourself or you know you bring ideas to your slt whereas i've kind of found that this is such a nice way to kind of really hone and pin down on things that just specifically interest me that i know aren't a priority right now in our school so you know we're not going to have that opportunity to um have that kind of delivered to us so that's what i particularly enjoy about it no certainly and my second question is a follow-on to that and um, what, what difference has that professional learning made for you in the classroom and for your career uh, fundamentally it just means that the children that um, i'm privileged to teach they just get a better offer um and what what bigger difference can you can you want for you know we all come every person come has come to the classroom for the same reason and that's to you know make sure that our young people get the best possible chance that uh, they can get and in the con in the context of you know this web this uh, podcast if it means that i'm one of the hopefully fortunate classes where you know it's not between you know one fifth and a quarter but you know still perhaps only one tenth perhaps of leaving me not being able to you know read fluently but i'm kind of set them on that right trajectory then you know fantastic amazing uh in terms of career um, you know, obviously i'm very privileged that i um have been able to find find some you know some roles through um 
Twitter and things like that. And, you know, I'm developing that professional network. I'm able to help and support, uh, you know, teachers with things like curriculum, with early reading, which, you know, we, um, I've been fortunate enough to have been to, to go to, uh, you know, the Isle of Man to look at curriculum over there. Yeah, it's opened up so many interesting doors and opportunities for me that, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. Certainly. Thanks so much for sharing that. And the final question is, what one thing would you like to see more of as part of professional learning and how we carry out professional learning? Yeah, I certainly think, um, I think we talked about before we started recording, primary and secondary, you know, really kind of coming together and not thinking of, uh, you know, education as, you know, they have their primary school and then it's just secondary school. You know, let's really kind of think about well, where are these children at the stage of development, be that mathematics, be that reading. And, you know, let's work together to make sure that these children really do have that opportunity to, um, you know, succeed. Because if there is that uh, that deficit of early development, then you know, I think primary school teachers are in the best place to kind of uh, support secondary school teachers with how to do that. You know, likewise, uh, secondary teachers, you know, if, if you know that there's some really bad ways to teach some things in mathematics or science, then, you know, you're noticing that there are, you know, particular misconceptions coming up because we teach whatever in a certain way, you know, let us know. You know, we certainly don't do those things, mm-hmm. you know, purposefully. As, as I say, you know, we are primary schools, you know, jack of all, master of none. We've got 11 subjects to to balance we can't get it all right but i know everyone's here to kind of you know do their best for the students so yeah let's work together uh, as a whole sector to give every young person the best opportunity that they can no certainly there, there's much much to learn from our, our primary colleagues um, so i certainly echo that and it's it's important i think that we do kind of collaborate more because and we don't want the children to come to secondary school and, and us kind of, you say about doing things maybe differently from the secondary school, but you don't want the secondary school to unpick the great work and the, the great learning that goes on in primary school to then go on a different route. So kind of marrying that up is really, really important. So that brings us to the end. Neil, I'd like to thank you so, so much for giving up this this time on a, on a Tuesday evening to spend with me for becoming educated and for sharing so much of your knowledge around about reading and reading instruction. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem at all. Thank you for having us, Darren. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.